Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is 1 Samuel chapter 29, verses 1 to 11. It's delightful to see many of you back after some time away over the holiday time. We're continuing, of course, now nearing the end of our series in the book of 1 Samuel. We'll then turn the corner right into 2 Samuel, so we're not leaving it. Um, But if you would keep your Bible there and available, particularly if you're back after a while or haven't been with us before, it'll help you follow along as we dive into this part of the end of 1 Samuel. There are two headings under which I want to consider the content and implications of 1 Samuel 29 this morning. And I'll give them to you right up front so that you have them, and then we'll work our way forward to them again in the course of the sermon. I want to consider, first of all, from chapter 29, the duplicity of David. And then secondly, the deliverance of the Lord the duplicity of David, and the deliverance of the Lord. And the strange thing is, they're not all that easy to separate in the content of 1 Samuel 29, because in fact the very means by which the Lord will deliver David serves to highlight in my reading of this chapter the grievous duplicity of David. Three times in this chapter, Achish the king of Gath, who is one of the five lords of the Philistines, as we'll see, defends David, who is the already anointed but not yet enthroned king of Israel, if you've been here through the study of 1 Samuel, of course. He defends David in verse 3, in verses 6 and 7, and in verses 9 and 10. Look at him. Verse 3, halfway into the verse, Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. And then in verse 6, speaking to David, As the Lord lives, Achish says, You have been honest. For I found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. And then he he heaps up the praise in verse 9. Achish answered David and said, I know that you are blameless in my sight as an angel of God. What's the point? Why have this Lord of the Philistines say three times in the span of 11 verses that David's faultless and honest and blameless? I mean, Akish takes up almost 50% of the ink here, right? He even swears to David in the name of the Lord in verse 6. That is the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. You see, Lord is in all capital letters there, which is the signal that this is the use of the covenant name of the God of Israel. Akish swears in the name of the Lord that David has been so upstanding, so trustworthy, so honest. Why? 
because David hasn't been any of those things. Because this is a sort of emphatic irony, isn't it? Because all the while, the one thing that you readers, if you were here when we talked about 1 Samuel chapter 27 and up to verse 2 of 28, the one thing you know is that none of what Akish says about David is true. In other words, the story's told this way in order to highlight the duplicity of David. Akish had been duped, remember? That's been a few weeks. Lots happened between now and then. So let's review briefly. 1 Samuel 27, verse 1, if you'd look back there, just a couple chapters. Then David said in his heart, remember this, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. And he did. And he went to Gath. And I argued at length a few weeks ago that that was not a faithful move on David's part. And I won't go back into all the reasons for that now, but it's there from the sermon in 1 Samuel 27. The key, as you'll recall, is in what the narrator says David was saying in his heart, which is in direct contradiction to the promises of God to him, not but two chapters earlier in the book. Verse 3 then of chapter 27 says, David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and Achish gave David Ziklag, you remember? Verse 7 of that chapter says, the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. And you remember what he was doing? David, verse 8, he went up and he made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, and David would strike the land and you'd, he'd have every person killed just so that no one could go back to Achish. This was the reason, so that no one could go back to Achish and tell Achish what he, David, was doing because the whole time, whenever Achish would ask him where he'd made the raid that day, David would say it was against Judah or Israel or one of Israel's allies. All just to stay in favor with Achish. So that verse 12 of 1 Samuel 27 was the gut punch line. Remember? And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. That's what was going on in chapter 27. And you come now to chapter 29, and we'll talk about why we skipped over 28 in a minute, but you come now to chapter 29, and what do you know? What you know is that nothing Akish says is true. Though he thinks it is, David isn't faultless. David isn't honest. David isn't blameless. He's none of that in this season of his life. David's duplicity is on full display in the way the chapter's written. And at the same time, what else is happening? 
Well, the Lord's delivering David. <laughs> That's what's happening. He's delivering David from the Philistines, but really, he's delivering David from himself. Because David deserved that? No. <laughs> no. Only because of the Lord's mercy, as we'll see later. So, let me quickly now survey the remaining content of the chapter. I've already read some of the verses. It's a pretty short chapter as it is. After then, I've done that. We'll come back to the two headings I started with, and I'll say a bit more about them. I've introduced them already. But you know, at this point, in the, near the end of 1 Samuel, we're following the account of David primarily here. But it meant that we skipped over chapter 28 in my quick review a minute ago, where we were on the fourth Sunday in Advent a few weeks ago, because... If you recall, the narrator of Samuel at this point is interweaving the accounts of David and of Saul. And next week, we're going to come full circle back as we finish the book of 1 Samuel to see how that works out in the end as Saul meets with his death. But chapter 29, verse 1, actually picks up chronologically on the heels of the cliffhanger that we left in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 28. So look back there at 28, verse 1. We've read about David then in 27 going to live with the Philistines and Achish trusting him. The end of the chapter, we come then to the verse at the beginning of 28. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. But then, instead of carrying on with that storyline, we're left wondering what happens to David, because beginning in verse 3 of chapter 28, we were then focused on Saul. And we read about what was happening with Saul at Endor while the Philistine forces were, as verse 4 notes in that chapter, the Philistine forces were then encamped in Shunem. So this is a little complicated, but it's not too hard to work out. It's not explicit, but the geographical notes make it clear enough. In chapter 27, David, of course, is in Gath. Just think south, south of Israel in Gath. Southwest, really, but doesn't matter. He's in Gath in chapter 27. Chapter 28, all about Saul, is taking place when the Philistines now suddenly are at Shunem and Saul's in Gilboa, and that's well to the north of Gath. It's near the heart of Israel, near the Jezreel Valley. But in chapter 29, where we are today, we're back in Aphek. Verse 1 of our chapter, Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. Aphek is 30 miles north of Gath, but 40 miles south of Shunem meaning the Philistines would have started in, in Gath and moved to Aphek and then gone to Shunem. But the chapter 28 had us in Shunem before now we're seeing what happened in Aphek. Does that make sense? Chapter 29 is therefore taking us back in time from the eve of the battle in Gilboa that we were at, at the end, ready for at the end of 28. We go back perhaps several days to the buildup of the Philistine forces against Israel in Aphek, where if you have a 
recollection of this, they had assembled their forces way back in chapter 4 when they took the Ark of the Covenant back then. We know that Saul's fate is sealed after reading chapter 28. Remember the ghost of Samuel or whatever it was? says that Saul's going to die the following day in the battle with the Philistines. What we don't know yet as readers of Samuel at this point is where David falls in all of that. Which is why then we go back to find out. So verse 2 of our chapter 29 tells us that the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish. Now, there were five primary Philistine cities, of which Gath was one. Each of those had rulers who are called the lords in this verse. In other places, they're called kings, as Achish is called. Achish, therefore, is one of the five Philistine lords or kings. But now they're all coming together in this offense against Israel with their military units. And it then is some of the military commanders who notice David, presumably from other ones of these cities. And they're aghast. So verse 3, the commanders of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? Then we get the first defense of David from Achish in the rest of verse 3. He obviously thinks David and his men are genuine mercenaries who can be trusted, but the commanders of the rest of the Philistine armies aren't buying that. In fact, they're irate. Verse 4, the commanders of the Philistines are angry with Achish, and the commanders of the Philistines said to Achish, send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you've assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? And they're talking about Saul there, right? The king of Israel. Would it not be with the heads of the men here? That is their own heads, Philistine heads. Verse 5, is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands which if you've been with us through Samuel, you know, you're now being taken back all the way to David's great triumph over Goliath, right? Where after that happened in chapter 17, in chapter 18, verses 6 and following, this is the song, you remember, that the women sang to meet King Saul after David had struck down Goliath and they're coming back and David had cut off Goliath's head. Remember, what are they worried about? That their heads are going to be... And we talked about how though that song itself didn't necessarily seem intended to elevate David above Saul, that was sure how Saul heard it. So that right from the start, Saul becomes jealous of David and the ball starts rolling all the way. And obviously the song had become well known in areas around Israel as well because the Philistines referenced it the first time that David had gone to Achish, the king of Gath, back in chapter 21. So we've been over that before. The Philistine commanders suspect David and his men then are just planning to be a fifth column within their ranks. So the other four lords of the Philistines essentially veto Achish's decision to bring David along in battle. So that beginning in verse 6 of our chapter, we have Achish then coming back to David to deliver the bad news that 
you know is actually good news. Right? To me, it seems, Akish says, that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. Verse 7, so go back now, David, and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And then look at verse 8, because here's the one time we get David speaking in this chapter, and what's he doing? Well, I think David's playing the outraged innocent here. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? I mean, what a scene, right? We get Achish standing there extolling David's faithfulness, which he has no reason to extol, really. And then we have David with disbelief on his face, protesting the rejection. He has no reason to protest, or at least that's how I read it. I feel compelled to tell you that some interpreters suggest that David really was trying to go with the Philistines because it really was David's plan to turn against the Philistines in the battle, in which case, if that's right, you are supposed to then read the last phrase of David's crafty response there to Achish to be a reference actually to Yahweh, though Achish wouldn't have thought that, or maybe even to Saul, so that when David says that I may fight against the enemies of my lord the king, David actually is just tricking Achish yet again, saying in fact the opposite of what he seemed to be saying, meaning he would in fact turn against Achish in the battle. That's not what I think. I don't buy that read at this point. But it's there, and some people argue it. You should know that. I think David's feigning this great distress about the decision of Achish, while inwardly we know as readers that he has to be feeling this huge sense of relief. Right? But that can't show, you see. So David acts the part. And I, you kind of get a little nervous as readers there, don't you? I mean, what if Akish reconsiders? I mean, you almost want to holler at David. It's like, shut up, man. Just don't mess this up. Just accept that the Philistines are your saviors here and get out. Which is what he does do, of course. So that the chapter ends as... Akish again defends David in verse 9 and calls him like an angel of God, but then sticks by his decision and instructs David in verse 10, Now rise then early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. And that's what happens, verse 11. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel so that the battle that we're expecting now after reading chapter 28 is all teed up and David is clearly shown to be far away when it happens. That's chapter 29. But now I want to take some time to reflect on this with you because once again, 
It's just the way it works in Hebrew narrative. We have a narrative that does not come out and tell us what to make of all of this explicitly. Which means it's our job as readers, and particularly my job in preparing this for you, to make the connections that we need to make, to think, to ask the questions we need to ask. And so I want to offer reflections in the two areas that I put forward at the start. Firstly, on the duplicity of David, and then secondly, on the deliverance of the Lord. First on David's duplicity. I mean, dear friends, this is not going to be the last time that we'll have to work through David's failures, if you know what's coming in the book of 2 Samuel. But this is a tough one, because as recently as chapter 25, several weeks ago now, we were reading the words of Abigail. Do you recall this, when she prevented David from going after Nabal? And she said in chapter 25, the Lord will certainly make my Lord, David, a sure house because, she says, my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, right? And we've seen how David did fight those battles well in the past, but here we are. And we find David in a situation in which he not only couldn't fight the Lord's battle against the Philistines, but in fact, he might even be forced to fight against the Lord's people. Which means, if you think about it, that David is facing the prospect here in the narrative of potentially being forced to do the very thing that he'd refused to do righteously in the past, that is, to take up his sword against Saul. That's kind of the overarching narrative tension here, because we just had learned in chapter 28 that Saul's, Saul's going to die in this imminent battle with the Philistines, the question in the narrative flow becomes, is that going to be by the sword of David? Is David going to have to play a part in what he clearly had known before that he must not do? You remember David's words when he and his men were in the cave in which Saul had come and his men had urged him to kill Saul. And David said in chapter 24, verse 6, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, to Saul, the Lord's, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him. What if the point is that there, David was in a position in which he could make the right choice? But now where is he? because of his own decision to seek refuge among the Philistines, to play this deceitful game with Achish, he no longer has that same freedom. Right? By his cleverness, David had forfeited the freedom to openly follow the Lord. In other words, David had become trapped by his own duplicity. Look at I'm going to quote how one uh, commentator puts this. When a person seeks to find security by his or her own devices apart from the Lord's leading, which I argued is exactly what David was doing, right? In chapter 27, when he was seeking his security apart from the Lord, more often than not, he will place himself in a position where he's no longer free to act in conformity with his deepest beliefs. 
Do you get it? Let me say it this way. Life isn't a series of independent decisions in which you are equally, will find it equally possible to follow the Lord or not. Brothers and sisters, because your choices have consequences for your ability to follow the Lord in the next hour or tomorrow or next month or 10 years from now. And here's David a year and four months after he makes the decision to go to Philistia in contradiction, I argue, to everything he knew about God's promises to him specifically. And you see how he's caught now, right? And I do suggest to you that deep down, David still knows what's right. And David still believes in the Lord, but here he is. And not only is David unable to act on his true beliefs, if that's right, David can't even talk about them. Akish develops this trust in David during this whole time, and it's a total lie. So when you come to verse 6 of our chapter, I think we're meant to feel the sadness of all of this. Akish says, as the Lord lives, David, you have been honest. Do you? You feel the weight of that as the Lord lives? Akish is using the name of the Lord. I mean, did Akish have such confidence in David that in some way, or I don't know what, maybe he was some kind of, he'd gotten to know something about the God whom David served? I don't know. I can't prove it. But here's a Lord of the Philistines comfortable using the name of David's God to swear an oath. And what I think is that Something like that should have been a moment when David could then seize that opportunity and speak to Achish about the God of Israel. About the God that David loved and served. We know he did. And what I'm trying to point out to you is that David can't do that now. Because David's forced now by circumstances of his own making to carry out the hoax, you see. David's in no position to speak the truth. And look at I recognize that you and I are not likely to find ourselves in situations that are as serious as the one that David meets with here. But isn't this true? How we live, what we say, what we do around others, around your co-workers, around your classmates, all of it either opens up the possibility to speak to the reality of the God that you love to them, or it forecloses that possibility. Because the time will come when your act of obedience or your word of truth will mean everything. In terms of not just your faithfulness, which David's not exhibiting as I read these chapters, but maybe also in terms of your ability to witness to others, to speak of God to others. And what I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is that we should live lives that are open and transparent about who we are with the Lord. 
a lesson from this chapter could be don't maneuver yourself into situations where you can't speak, you can't act openly, clearly about your faith. You have to conceal and disguise who you really are. And what I'm trying to say is that all of that starts long before the moment itself comes. It starts today. It starts with lives lived in open and transparent obedience to the Lord. I mean, I just think of the significance of that opening call to confession in our communion service every week. Well, it's probably enough said about David's duplicity. Let me end then this morning thinking about the deliverance of the Lord. Because I am with the overwhelming number of commentators who in this passage see that what happens in chapter 29 is not David's good luck. It's not his lucky break. It is rather divine, merciful deliverance. And the emphasis has to be on the merciful part, right? For all the reasons we just discussed. Because my read is that this is a chapter in which the disastrous consequences of the foolish actions of David, the servant of God are turned around by divine intervention. And in fact, I think it's because of that gracious intervention alone that David is delivered from this dilemma. And I know that the passage, again, does not tell us this explicitly. In fact, the passage almost doesn't mention Yahweh at all. It's only Akish who says anything about the Lord, ironically. But I don't think as readers of Samuel... We need the narrator to just wrap everything up with a nice sentence like, and so the Lord delivered David from the Philistines. I mean, I just think we're supposed to know that that's what's happening here so that I agree on this point with, for example, a commentator who says that there is no mention of God here, but we're dealing with a highly self-conscious theological literature that observes the undercurrent of divine governance without being explicit. Yahweh is with David everywhere, surely with him among the Philistines as elsewhere, surely in chapter 9 as in those places where it is explicitly stated, the narrator is not so disbelieving as to perceive the outcome of the narrative as luck. That's my view. If you grant me that point, then what could we say about the deliverance of God from this chapter? Well, a few things, but I'll just say two things. First of all, we can at least observe that God is able to work in surprising ways. In spite of David. I mean, he delivers David by the insistence of the commanding officers of the Philistine army. I submit to you that the Philistines were improbable deliverers of David, to say the least. But that that's part of the point. That the Lord can use even his enemies to bring about his purposes and to bring praise to his name. And you have to think of the later Israelites who would be reading about this and what that would have meant to them. God preserved David. God delivered David by the most unexpected means. 
But I think we can make a second observation that, uh, that I want to emphasize more as we close. I think we see in 1 Samuel 29 that God's mercy is still able to pursue his servants even in their folly and even in their sin. And yes, I know David is the anointed king of Israel. And without David, I mean, where would we be? <laughs> no Jesus, no. You know, I get that. I get that there's a big redemptive historical movement in these books. But I think it also teaches us something on the individual level. It teaches us that the Lord isn't short-tempered. That the Lord is long-suffering in His mercy. That His patience isn't expended when His people make foolish mistakes. That this is an example of the character of the God we serve, brothers and sisters. 2 Timothy 2, verse 13, Paul says, If we are faithless, He remains faithful. For He cannot deny Himself. And I think a chapter like 1 Samuel 29 should lead us to take that to heart, dear friends, and not just for ourselves, but for others too. Because I have observed in my own self and in pastoral ministry this tendency sometimes to be willing to accept mercy and grace for ourselves, but I mean really we're not always sure someone else deserves that. I mean, look at what he's done, or look at what she's done. Or, and we sort of somehow come up with this God in our heads who we think that when someone's really botched a section of their life pretty badly, God probably is just going to go into a huff and abandon him or her just to stew in their own juice, right? Which says more about us. Because is that the God of David? There's David marching with the Philistines, caught in his own trap, about to go into battle against his own people. No, it's not Yahweh, brothers and sisters. Yahweh's mercy can find David even in Philistia. The God who saved David from Saul again and again can surely save David from himself. And he can surely save you from yourself and me from myself, whatever we've gotten ourselves into. Dear friends, do you believe that? The Lord can be trusted even when you cannot. The Lord will be faithful and good even when you're not. The Lord is faithful to forgive when you are graciously able to see just how unfaithful you've been. And I'll tell you, that's going to be a key lesson for us from David's life in the weeks and months ahead. And you know how David himself famously puts it in Psalm 23. You know this verse, verse 6. It's marvelous. Psalm 23, verse 6, a psalm of David. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me 
I think you could translate it, pursue me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And you might have picked up on it earlier, but there's a striking contrast between the end of chapter 28 and the end of chapter 29, isn't there? There we were a few weeks ago with Saul and his companions as they went off into the darkness in chapter 28, verse 25. It's not night at the end of chapter 29. Three times the narrator points out that it's to be the early in the morning. When the light's coming up, David walks away in the morning saved by the Philistines who would destroy Saul. Not because David knew nothing of darkness or of sin, but because David's night wasn't like Saul's night, only by the mercy of God. Which is why David sings about it. Right? Psalm 30, another psalm of David, verses 4 and 5. Psalm 30, verses 4 and 5. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.